Hello and welcome to An Open Conversation, the podcast series which explores obesity through the lens of policy, prevention and care. I'm your host, Vicky Mooney, and I'm a patient advocate first and foremost. I'm the Executive Director for the European Coalition for People Living with Obesity, ECPO, and today I'm going to be having an open conversation with Professor Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director for the Rudd Centre for Food Policy, and our patient advocate, Miss Sarah Bramblett. Now, in today's episode, we'll be discussing the consequences of weight bias, obesity stigma, and discriminatory implications for people living with obesity in the context of such areas as healthcare, education, and employment. Before we get into it, let me bring on our guests and let them introduce themselves. Miss Rebecca Poole, it's great to have you here. Hi, Vicky. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, Rebecca Poole. I'm Professor of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Connecticut, where I'm also the Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health. And I'm a researcher who has been studying weight stigma and bias for about two decades now. So I'm really pleased to be joining the discussion today. And we are delighted to have you. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Sarah, I had the luxury and pleasure of meeting you in the US a couple of years ago. It's wonderful to meet you again. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Sarah Bramblett. I am a patient living with obesity, lipedema and lymphedema. I have a lot of experience with those conditions throughout my life and I've turned that into advocacy. I am a member of the Obesity Action Coalition here in the US, and I'm also board chair of the Lymphedema Advocacy Group. And an absolute legend of a lady, may I add, as well, with all of the work that you do for all of the organizations. Now, let's get to it. Rebecca, I'm going to come to you first, and let's unpack this for our audience. What can we define as stigma and bias, and what are the health consequences associated with them? Well, so generally, weight stigma can be understood as societal devaluation of people because of their their body weight or their body size. And this includes negative attitudes and stereotypes towards people who have higher body weight. And, you know, we live in a society where stereotypes are very prevalent that people who have obesity or who have a higher weight are lazy or lacking in motivation or discipline or willpower. And these kinds of stereotypes are widespread, but they are rarely challenged in our society. And they can really, unfortunately, give way to prejudice, unfair treatment, and discrimination. And when people have these experiences, it really negatively impacts their health. So the harms of experiencing weight stigma are very real, and they're very long-lasting for people's health. And this affects people's emotional well-being and their physical health. So for example, with respect to emotional well-being, when people are stigmatized about their weight, this can lead to levels, increased levels of depression, anxiety, lower self-esteem, worse body image, even higher levels of things like substance use and suicidality. So it really takes a tremendous toll. And with physical health, weight stigma is also very damaging. So it can lead to higher levels of physical stress. It can lead to avoidance of physical activity, oftentimes because people feel very vulnerable to being stigmatized in physical activity settings. And so they they avoid those experiences. But it also contributes to unhealthy eating behaviors like binge eating, sometimes because people turn to food as a way to try to cope with the distress of stigma. And we know that weight stigma can even lead to weight gain. So we see from longitudinal studies and research that experiencing weight stigma actually predicts weight gain and obesity over time. And all of these research findings are important because 
they show us that weight stigma itself is a public health issue, that weight stigma does not provide an incentive or motivation for people to lose weight. We see the opposite is true. And I think a lot of times people think of weight stigma as a consequence of obesity, and it certainly is, but it is also a contributor to obesity. It's both. It is indeed. And being a patient, I've had that experience. And I want to go to Sarah in a moment and help marry that kind of patient and personal experience with this. But just before we move over to Sarah, I want to ask you, when does stigma actually become discrimination? So weight discrimination occurs when stigma becomes enacted into specific behaviors or unfair treatment of people because of their weight. And it can range from frequent instances of being treated with less respect than other people, like in subtle ways, or it can be treated unfairly in more overt ways in certain contexts, like being denied employment because of one's weight. So there are a range of different kinds of behaviors that include discrimination. Yeah, we're, we're going to move to that area shortly. But Sarah, I want to bring you in and speak a little bit about how your life has been affected by the various different types of stigma and discrimination. Have you faced it? And how does it affect you as a person? So certainly I have experienced weight stigma and specifically discrimination in every area, healthcare, education and employment. And I find that those three areas are pillars of living life. And so even, you know, at my weight as a young age, I had teachers who um, specifically targeted me based on my weight or had assumptions made about me. I had a teacher in second grade pinch my arm, had me stand up to read something and I wasn't standing the way she wanted me to. So she told me to turn around. I didn't turn around properly. She pinched my arm. I cried. It turned into writing a note to my mother saying I cried in class. And of course, my mother asked me why. I said she pinched my arm. And so my mother wrote back and said, you pinched your arm. And the the teacher in front of everyone said, your arm is too fat to pinch. You write another note back to your mother and tell her you lied. And so I can just remember like writing and sitting there, like having to write a note to my mother saying I lied when I knew I didn't lie. It's small things like that, that you encounter that I thankfully had someone who stood up for me and I knew to stand up for myself. But as Rebecca mentioned, Things like that can really impact. I mean, surely it's impacted me. I remember it to this day and I bring it up. But other people, it would have had a more lasting, possibly negative impact with them where, you know, it kept them from doing things. I know people who dropped out of school due to the the stigma and bias and uh, discrimination that they uh, encountered. So it certainly it does have negative and it's negative to me. I've just found a way to turn it into action. So. Yeah. Yes. And you are quite active, actually, when it comes to advocating for people. And I've seen it and you're passionate and I've experienced the stigma and the discrimination myself. But can I just ask you before we actually move on a little, did you realize a second grade you would have been quite young as a child? Did you realize you were being discriminated against? I didn't. So in second grade is when I realized I was different. And the way I realized I was different is because a nurse pulled me out of class to tell me that I was fat. And that I weighed more. So I'm the youngest of five. I distinctly remember my siblings teasing me that I weighed 100 pounds. And I thought they were just teasing me, you know, because, of course, you had no concept of what 100 pounds was. But she pulled me out of class to tell me that I was fat. I weighed 125 pounds in second grade. So I was like seven. I realized that's what the charts say should be my 
target weight now, but I had no idea that I was different. And even though my mother had had the school uniform made for me, that just didn't click for me. I just didn't realize. So it kind of brought that, wow, I'm different. It was interesting for for me to find out there was something wrong with me when I didn't realize there was anything wrong with me. And then throughout life, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like I try to think, oh no, they're not discriminated. But I think it hinges on what Rebecca mentioned of the difference between experiencing stigma, which I experienced that so much. So I can't just quickly do a a doctor's appointment. So institutional stigma is the fact that I can't currently have a cardiac procedure I need because I'm too heavy for the uh, procedure table. So the initial cardiologist I saw was very compassionate and said, we'll figure it out or or just get under the table weight. So get 10 pounds under the table weight. And I said, okay. But then we had another appointment and he wanted me 50 pounds under the table weight. And I thought, why would that be? I'm used to having equipment not be able to handle me. So I understand that. But when we're leaving the office and the receptionist says, when do you want to see her back? And he says, when she weighs 390. And I just thought, what? I, I felt more discrimination or more harsh because if the table capacity is 440, why do you need me to be 390? That's something beyond just the, the the regular things. And it just struck. And just to scream that out in front of everyone. And he obviously didn't care to treat me because, of course, there was no, this is how you can do it. Or this is, it was just, this is when you come back. And so, of course, I found another doctor. So Yeah, of course. This ties beautifully into the challenges that we see with so many people when it comes to social media. And we see the portrayal of that. I suppose we see a glamorized media image of the perfect body and what everybody should be. And then we look at social media and we look at the traditional media's portrayal of people living with obesity. And that feeds into the stigmatization, I believe. Rebecca, is this something you believe as well? Oh, absolutely. We're frequently exposed to negative weight stereotypes in, in social media, in television, in film. We often see characters in TV and film of people with larger bodies who are portrayed in very stereotypical ways. In the news media, we certainly see stigmatizing visual portrayals of people with obesity. And, and in fact, we've done some research um, on this topic where we essentially show people realistic news reports that are accompanied with either a stigmatizing or a positive image of a person with obesity. And we see that those negative stigmatizing images really worsen people's levels of weight bias. We also see from our studies that people don't want to see those stigmatizing images in social media or in the news media. They want to see positive, non-stigmatizing images of people of diverse body sizes. But we continue to see news coverage really using degrading images. And I think when it comes to social media, we're seeing a lot of fat shaming through Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. Those have really become, unfortunately, platforms for disparaging comments about people because of their weight. And it's a platform that unfortunately makes people, especially women, feel judged and shamed about their bodies. And I do want to highlight here that it's not just adults who are affected. These issues are very present in youth-targeted media as well, whether it's children's television shows or social media that really appeals to youth. And that's a huge problem. These media messages really reinforce and contribute to broader societal weight bias, and they're very difficult to shut down, especially when it's happening in social media. 
Yeah, and actually, I wanted to divert a little on the side of that because you mentioned young people. And I look at the the video here and the screen of Sarah, and she is a young lady. And how this stigma and weight bias and discrimination actually is having that mental effect as well on our youth of today, because it goes beyond those health consequences that are constantly spoken about. It's mental health and ill mental health and is there anything you can unpack in that a little bit more for us, Rebecca? I think it's really important to consider what Sarah was talking about as a child and the experiences that she faced as a child. And what we see in research is exactly what Sarah has experienced, that for many people, weight stigma begins very early on in childhood and has long-lasting consequences. One of the things that I think is so important to think about with Sarah's discussion is that When we think about weight stigma that kids experience, we think about them being bullied by their peers, right, by other kids. And that is certainly very, very prevalent. But as Sarah's experiences highlighted, it's also from adults that children are experiencing stigma. They are experiencing it from teachers and from school nurses. And that's really backed up by the evidence that students with higher body weight are facing bias, not just from peers on the playground, but from teachers and educators in educational institutions. And that can really influence not only psychological well-being, but people's educational experiences. Yes, very much so. And actually, as I go to Sarah now, and I wanted to give you a minute after sharing your experience there, because my heart squeezed a little when you said what you did about the doctor, because as a patient, I know what that feels like. And I could feel like some tears welling up in my eyes. So I wanted to give you a moment to kind of just take a breather after sharing that very personal experience, which we're very grateful for. But we know the stigma has been evidenced in many different settings. And Notably, obviously, when it comes to employment and education, as you experience yourself and the healthcare setting, but how does it directly affect your life? How did you feel that day leaving that doctor's office? I, of course, felt very deflated, especially when it was someone who had promised they would help and that they were understanding of the lymphedema and the lipedema and how they contributed. One of the things he said is, I can't do this. I wasn't trying to avoid losing weight. I've actually lost 40 pounds trying to get under this. It's just very difficult with the conditions I have. And it's also very difficult with the lack of access to obesity treatments in the United States. So I just felt like someone who had promised they would help me was now not wanting to help. Yet he thanked me for my advocacy and wants to like have other patients contact me. And I said, what are you doing within your cardiologist profession to work on this? You need to speak to your cardiologist and address the fact that these table capacities need to be higher. And so it just felt like once again, I was being let down. And the fact is, just because my medications aren't working. So it's just a culmination of here I am again. And then honestly, part of it is like, what did I ever do to deserve this? Why do patients have to work so hard to get care? I think that's yeah. the, the worst thing is what... If I had a cancerous tumor or something else, I don't think people would be as nonchalant about, oh, well, just lose weight and get back to me. It just, it's frustrating. I mean, my primary hair doctor's as frustrated as I was. But of course, in my mind, it was directly like, okay, then I'm going to see someone else. And, and that is something that I have learned. I will not stand for it. I will move on. Yeah. I won't continue to go back to this person. Certainly, I didn't report them or 
anything because there's not a lot of mechanisms in place. And that is even more exhausting and time consuming. And I already feel like as a patient, I have to use my time to do these things. I I was just going to ask you because you touched on my next question to you, which was, are there legal mechanisms in place in the US that will help you fight against discrimination? And for people out there who have obesity and have been in similar situations? So when obesity comes to the point of being a disability, which it is for me, there's possible protections under what we call the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I, I have so many stories to touch on. We haven't touched on my employment discrimination, but the avenues to take that are complicated. And I will tell you, you then face discrimination within the legal process and within these agencies who, despite obesity possibly meeting that definition, there's still that bias and that assumptions and stereotypes made. So it's even more difficult. I will say in healthcare though, it's interesting as a disability aspect of how inaccessible our healthcare is for people with disabilities in general. If I were to go to the hospital, especially now in the pandemic, a lot of hospitals have removed their valet services. So if I go, I have to find parking and try to walk in. There's not wheelchairs readily available at the entrance or anyone there to help you. If I go, I have to most likely ask for a gown that will fit me. Or I've just started wearing a dress that I can easily take down or take off. I've just adjusted. Compare that to flying. And I know people, there's a lot of fear about flying, but we have an airline that um, provides a free second seat. And as soon as I get on, most flight attendants will politely ask you, do you need an extender? And when you get dropped off at the airport, there's wheelchairs right at the entrance. You can get in a wheelchair and they take you directly where you need to go. And it's just amazing. I get better accommodations when traveling than I do in healthcare. Think that's a wake-up call that we need to address. It truly is. And I want to actually, on that positive kind of note, I, I want to come to your employment experience as well. But I just want to go back to Rebecca and just listening to what Sarah has shared there as well. We're seeing examples of stigma everywhere and discrimination, but have you seen it as a researcher and what have you seen? And I, I think particularly in the government bodies and healthcare institutions, what have you seen? I think, as Sarah has highlighted, that stigma really exists in every societal domain. Unfortunately, healthcare is one of those settings, and it's unfortunately very common. We know from research that adults with obesity frequently report being stigmatized from healthcare providers. In fact, doctors are often one of the most common sources of weight stigma that people report in our studies. And that can come across in lots of different ways, in the ways that providers communicate with patients, how much time they spend in medical appointments, what they attribute their health problems to, what kind of medical procedures they allow or don't allow their patients to undergo. And as Sarah alluded to, this really can affect healthcare utilization, right? It can lead people to switch doctors, to avoid seeking healthcare because they don't want to repeat those negative experiences. So it reduces healthcare utilization. And so I think that this really underscores that stigma needs to be elevated on the radar in the medical community. This needs to be part of training. It needs to be part of education. And it's just not there yet. Yeah, I've seen this myself. I've seen so many different reports where it's been highlighted, but we're just not seeing it manifest yet. And I think when it comes to governmental bodies and we look at strategies that are rolled out on national levels and here in Europe, and we need to see in that framework of these strategies that stigma and weight bias has been recognized and 
you know, the experience of people like Sarah has been brought to the forefront there so they don't make the same mistake going over again and again. I just want to come back to you, Sarah, and let's talk about employment for a moment and share with us some of your experience. So probably the most detrimental to me was I had a job where I was seeking advance in my job. I was a new employee, but I had been given good feedback. I was, you know, positively spoken about. I was asked to take on additional tasks. I was asked to be on special teams. So I was being recognized as doing good work until an opportunity came up for advancement, which was, it's common in the United States to wait a year before you advance. So it was earlier. I'd only been there less than a year. So I asked if I could apply for the position and I was told I could, but then didn't get even through the initial screening. So I went to the person who said it was okay to apply and said, HR said I didn't make it past the initial screening, but I just wanted to ask you, what can I do to better my position the next time an opportunity comes around? And the very first thing she said to me was, dress for the part you want, not the part you have. And I just thought, my appearance? My, like not anything tangible, just appearance. And when you ask, how did you know it's discrimination? So I let that go. Like I let that go. But then it came time for our annual review. And even though I hadn't been there a year, I still was reviewed because they do all the reviews at the same time. And it was actually put in my annual review because don't ask me why any type of workplace has a section under appearance. I think that's just, yeah. I mean, it's sad. It actually put in, Sarah would like to advance in the company, but in order to do, she's been advised, she needs to have a more professional appearance or professional attire. Now, mind you, I had worked before this. I had absolutely never had anyone say anything about how I looked as in my professional attire. But plus size clothing is more expensive. Plus size clothing is not easily accessible. And when I have my extremities, my arms and legs are larger size due to the lymphedema and the lipedema. So it's even more difficult to find clothes that fit or comfortably fit because it can be very painful being tight on my arms or legs. But I thought I looked completely fine. That was my wake up call to their judging me based on that. But I started to dress better. I started to fix my hair different. I started to wear dresses. And then when my coworker said, why are you so dressed up? I said, well, that's what I was told it takes to get ahead here. And of course that got back to the person and that didn't fare very well with me, but the truth hurts. And I realized, obviously I don't want to work for a company. That's what they base people on. Eventually, oh, things didn't end well with the company. Let's just say it that way. I put my resignation in they didn't accept it. So they technically fired me, but I had actually already gone to the EEOC, which is the, oh, Rebecca, I might have this wrong, the Equal Opportunity, Equal Equal Employment Employment. Opportunity, which is a government agency, which you have to go through and file through first before you can take any legal action. So I went through them and filed. And in the meantime, I actually did get another job. I actually got a job with an insurance company in the United States that sent me out to doctor's offices. So you can't tell me there was anything wrong with my appearance if a major insurance company is fine enough with me representing yes. them and doctor's offices. But it was so detrimental to me because at that point, similar things had happened to me before I had gotten my education. So they could use that as the reason for not promoting me or not giving me a job. Like, oh, you don't have your degree finished. But at this point, I had two degrees and years of professional experience. And so it definitely was that they were judging me and discriminating me based on my weight and my appearance. And that just led to 
the next job I had was going out traveling was a little bit too much. And so when I couldn't do that, you know, now I'm on disability and I'm on, you know, Medicare. I'm not as long as you think I am. I'm 44. Just that, the stigma of that, the stigma of not working full time and being on what they deem government assistance, it latches onto their stereotypes of what people with obesity are. That's why I share my story to explain to them. If I wasn't discriminated against, I probably could still be fully employed. But the discrimination that exists in hiring makes it very difficult to get a job. Now, the people who do work with me, even an OAC and in the lymphedema group and even members of Congress that I work with, they see me for who I am. But sometimes it takes getting over that hurdle and proving yourself before people always see that. Yeah. Do you know, it's almost as if there is for each person who has obesity and overweight, that personal responsibility to manage that weight stigma and bias. And that's something that we all have a responsibility to try and crack because I look back at my own experience myself, Sarah, and I'm 44 also. I was 15 years old. My career guidance counselor sat in front of me in school and I was quite excited. I thought, okay, what's she going to offer me? You know, what's she going to say? Where should I kind of put my roots down and look towards college or work? And she said, Vicky, she said, I think that you'll be best off applying for jobs in factories. There's some in packing boxes or perhaps sweeping floors. Now, I didn't have clothes that particularly fit me. We're going back to the 80s when it was hard to get plus size clothing, as you said, Sarah. But that judgment from a very wonderful lady who I idolized, who I thought was God's gift to Mm -hmm. the school, such a remarkable woman, literally just put me right down in one sentence. One Mm -hmm. sentence is all it took. And indeed I did. I went and I applied for jobs in factories. And my very first job was as a glassblower because I didn't believe that I was academic or I had the intelligence to go any further. And here I am now, what, 30 years later, working on the European and global stage. So it really shows you that that unconscious bias, which I do believe with my career guidance counselor, it was unconscious bias where people, as Rebecca said at the very beginning, were perceived as lazy and sloppy and gluttonous and their clothes didn't fit because obviously there wasn't clothing to fit a girl who was similar way to yourself, Sarah, you know. So how do we actually ensure, Rebecca, that this conscious and unconscious bias is effectively addressed within all of these settings? We looked at employment, just their education and healthcare. This is a really important question. And, you know, weight bias and stigma absolutely need to become a standard component and topic in existing training and education in these settings. It needs to be treated as a legitimate form of stigma alongside other stigmas that exist toward people because of their race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or religion or disability. So, for example, in employment, weight stigma is rarely, if ever, included in diversity or harassment trainings that are required for employees or uh, employers. It's also rarely included as training for human resource managers. So it, it needs to become a part of standard training. Now, in healthcare, weight stigma is also primarily absent in education and training. And in medical school, students receive very little content on obesity and nutrition, let alone weight stigma. So we know that when students enter medical school, for example, their weight bias is already present. Intervening early on in training is important. Educating students about implicit bias and the stereotypes and behaviors that they may be expressing towards patients are really important. And I think a lot of this really comes down to regardless of what setting we're talking about for educators, healthcare providers, employers, 
really understanding their own biases, learning how to challenge those assumptions and to interact in more respectful, compassionate ways with people. We've got a lot of work to do. This is a very resistant form of bias to change. And a lot of it does come down to what you mentioned before, Vicki, which is assumptions of personal responsibility and willpower, which are very ingrained in Western society as being at the root of why people have obesity. Indeed, they are. And we're seeing it everywhere. And I think as we we look towards wrapping up this in a, a couple of questions away. I think we've come to the perfect point, actually, when you said, Rebecca, there, we're looking at, I suppose, disease recognition for obesity, right? And we're looking at how we can actually address this, how we can get more training in. And when we look at chronic disease recognition, do you think that's going to help narrow those disparities in healthcare and challenge weight stigma? If we start with the disease classification, there certainly is some preliminary research to suggest that the disease classification of obesity might help reduce stigma, particularly in the healthcare setting among healthcare providers. More broadly, though, I think that's really an empirical question that needs more research. You know, we might predict that recognizing obesity as a disease would reduce blame of people who have obesity and therefore reduce stigma. But that doesn't always happen with other disease stigmas, and it's probably not going to be enough on its own to eradicate weight stigma. I think it could help, but we need more effort. You know, I think one of the reasons why we see so much bias essentially in every societal domain is that there are very few formal ways to challenge this bias, and it is essentially tolerated in society. So for a stigma that is so pervasive in society, we need much broader level remedies to really try to reduce this problem. And one of the key strategies in my mind is policy. So here in the U.S., some states are trying to pass laws that would make it illegal to discriminate against people because of their weight. One state is Michigan, and they've actually already done this. They passed a law back in the 1970s. Massachusetts is another state here trying to do the same thing. In fact, they just had a state hearing about this a month ago. We're still waiting the decision there. And although policy change is often a long slow process, we do see that there's a lot of public support for laws that would make it illegal to do things like have employers engage in weight discrimination. We have a lot of support for laws that would add body weight as a protected category in existing human rights laws. And we've recently done some multinational research on this as well with countries including the UK, Canada, Australia, Germany, France. And we see that public support is really present across these countries for different kinds of policies and laws to address weight stigma. So, for example, considerable support to address weight discrimination in employment, to make it illegal for an employer to refuse to hire someone because of their weight or fire them because of their weight. We Typically, we see the highest levels of support for laws that would target weight stigma in kids, so to better protect children from bullying. A lot of anti-bullying policies that are already in place in schools or at the state or local or provincial level, they don't usually have weight stigma on the radar. It's not usually included in policy language. So, you know, from my perspective, policy is really key here in the fight to end weight discrimination. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And thank you so much for clarifying so clearly what is needed there in that policy area. Now, I have one final question that I want to put to you both. And Sarah, I'm going to come to you first, if that's okay. And I want to ask you what are the most critical issues that need to be addressed to prevent and to decrease weight stigma in society? 
So as Rebecca touched on, I do think there needs to be a better understanding and that the policy enforces that obesity is a disease. And I realize there is debate about that, but for myself, and especially at my size, my weight certainly does impact my health. Obesity is a disease. If I didn't have that determination as it being a disease, I wouldn't have the protections that do exist under the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act because it is a disability for me. Certainly, there are people who are not the size that I am, who are a much lower size, who face discrimination. And that wouldn't qualify as it being a disability. So we certainly need broader protections, such as the Michigan law and hopefully Massachusetts law that protects people that's based on weight. Because I think we also know that people on both ends of the weight spectrum experience discrimination and stigma. Of course, on the higher end, it's much, much more pervasive and harmful, in my opinion. So I would like, in the United States right now, the biggest thing is obesity being recognized as a disease and for policies in healthcare to reflect that. We have what we call the Affordable Care Act, which was in place, I think it's been almost a decade, that is supposed to end discrimination in healthcare. It's supposed to end discrimination with pre-existing conditions, except for insurance is still allowed to exclude treatment of obesity. And I think with something that glaring in federal policy, it's just very harmful. And that would be, I think, the ultimate, of course, because my weight has always wrapped around my health care. And so that's really where my focus is the most. And I think when you can address your health and be as healthy as you possibly can be, or when you have that access, I think it then positively impacts other aspects of your life. If you don't feel well, if you're ill and you're not getting cared for, that negatively impacts the other aspects of your life. So for me, that understanding of obesity or excess weight is a condition. It's not just a lifestyle choice. And we need that understanding. We do. And you've married in what Rebecca was sharing on policy so well there. So thank you so much for that, Sarah. And thank you for sharing your personal experiences, which is quite humbling, even for myself, who's been through a lot as well. Rebecca, I want to give you the last word and the same question to yourself. I think we've established that policy is certainly a priority here. If we're going to eliminate weight stigma, we're going to need to do more than that. Because essentially what this comes down to is changing societal attitudes. And that's a really big job. So we need multiple strategies. So one certainly is educating people about the complex causes of body weight. Too often the messages that we see in the media are really oversimplifying this. And that contributes to societal weight bias. We also need broader efforts to challenge a lot of the harmful ideals of thinness that exist in Western society. And again, we need the media centrally involved there. We need standards for the media to ensure that their messages, their images are not promoting bias and harmful standards of thinness. And obviously, in addition to policy, which I think is really where we need to focus our efforts, in the meantime, we need to be raising awareness of the harms of weight stigma on health, especially in the medical community. We need to provide more support for people who are experiencing weight stigma so that they don't turn stigma inwards on themselves, which only causes more harm. I think removing personal blame is really key, and that requires changing the existing narrative in our society that really continues to ignore the complex causes of weight. So we can start by, you know, really trying to improve the settings that we find ourselves in to support, to empower people of all body sizes rather than making them feel shamed or stigmatized. 
Indeed. And that societal all rounder approach is quite a challenge. But with people like yourself doing the work behind the scenes and supporting people like myself and Sarah, we can only continue to get stronger, more empowered and drive change. Sarah, before I actually just wrap up, do you want to add a comment, lady? Yes. So as Rebecca mentioned, we need to change how society sees us. And right now, if you look at commercials, if you look at TV programs, they don't show people like me. They don't show someone with obesity, living life, doing advocacy work or having a job. Any TV shows, even if a person has obesity, their life is usually wrapped up with trying to lose weight or wanting to lose weight. And that's their storyline. But then the moment that commercial or someone of plus size comes out and is living their life, they are accused of promoting obesity or glorifying obesity. We are not allowed to just live our lives in public. And that's what I think would be more helpful. There is currently politicians who are out there, of course, musicians that people adore and some plus size models that people adore. And I adore them too. But when I see powerful women in politics out there, who look more of my size. I don't even want to mention names because I don't currently hear a lot of people talking about their weight. So I don't want to talk about their weight either. But that is what I like. I like seeing examples of what people can do without regards to that. And we need more of that in the media. And we need to squash this conversation about it's promoting obesity. We need more powerful people to step up as role models and not be this glamorized, perfect plus size model, but a real person with health conditions sharing how they are experiencing Mm -hmm. it and how it is wrong. It is just wrong. It is plain and simple. Obesity stigma, weight bias and discrimination is wrong. On that note, we have actually come to the end of the episode, ladies. I could chat forever to you both because I have loved this whole podcast series. Thank you so much, Miss Rebecca Poole and Miss Sarah Bramblett. Thank you for being with us, for your valuable insights, and thank you to everybody for listening. Now, if you'd like to continue the conversation on Twitter, please use the hashtag OpenConversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. You can also find out more about Open at www openobesity.org. Now, don't forget to also subscribe, follow us on Twitter at OpenObesity and on LinkedIn by searching the Obesity Policy Engagement Network. You can also hear about our new episodes over there and our previous episodes if you've missed them. I've been your host, Vicky Mooney. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for joining an open conversation.